Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens, IISS Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization and host of the IISS Sound Strategic Podcast. In today's episode, we'll discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which was launched on the 24th of February 2022 and remains an ongoing war. In today's episode, we take a look at the conflict through military, economic, and political lenses. How well have the Russian armed forces and Ukrainian armed forces performed thus far? And how should we take into consideration our own information biases when examining the developments of the military conflict? And what do we know about Russia's failures and its next operational aims? We then discuss Putin's political miscalculations, discussing the failures of Russia's statecraft in Europe, as well as how sanctions and their intended impacts might be perceived in Moscow. And finally, we look at the multinational response to the crisis, including NATO and the EU's response to the conflict, how united the response has been, but also how the conflict in Ukraine has brought about some surprising minilateral responses amongst countries within the NATO alliance. Lastly, we ask what the conflict means for NATO as it finalizes its upcoming strategic concept to be adopted at the Madrid summit later this year. To discuss these important topics, I'm joined today by Dr. Nigel Gold Davis, editor of the Strategic Survey and senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia, William Alberg, director of strategy, technology, and arms control, and Franz Stefan Gatti, research fellow for cyber, space, and future conflict. Welcome onto the show, Nigel, William, and Franz. Friends, let's first start with the military aspect of the conflict. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've observed of the Russian armed forces throughout their invasion of Ukraine, perhaps their strengths, but more importantly, perhaps their weaknesses as well? First of all, I think it's important to understand that we still largely live in the Ukrainian narrative of this conflict. Uh, Therefore, we tend to highlight Russian weaknesses more than we do on the Ukrainian side. And I think that's important uh, to understand because there's this information warfare aspect to everything that we are talking about when we uh, talk about current military operations that we need to need to keep in mind here. I think overall, the performance of the Russian armed forces has been rather poor at the tactical level. I think some of us in the analyst community perhaps took the wrong lessons from the 2008 Georgia war and this idea that the Russians really took their lessons there too hard when it comes to uh, perhaps improving their tactical performance overall. The Russian armed forces, particularly the ground forces, have been fairly inept at uh, combined arms maneuver, which is really key to any form of uh, military effectiveness in the modern battle space. And I think um, overall, yes, uh, the performance has been somewhat somewhat uh, less than we would have expected ahead of the conflict. Having said that, I think it's important to understand that perhaps we are also comparing apples and oranges here. What do I mean by that? I think the Russian armed forces did not train for this type of conflict. They did not expect a high-intensity war with Ukraine with a determined foe. Rather, they were thinking about a quick assault on Ukraine, a quick push along multiple axes of advance that really would not meet a lot of resistance. And therefore, it was okay for the individual troops to only know a few hours in advance before they were crossing the border that they would actually um, attack or invade um, Ukraine. And I think this really shows, in a way, the Russian armed forces have been playing catch-up game. What we know from the tactical situation so far is that most of these engagements that we've seen have been really minor engagement in, in, in many ways. So it's been platoon-sized, company-sized level engagement where the Russian could not really apply superior firepower. We've not really seen their 
famous or infamous rather battalion tactical groups um, really behaving the way we thought they would behave. So I think one conclusion here is that they are not so much fighting formations, but much more uh, formations or formations for organizational purposes within the, the armed forces. There's been also um, just overall very poor ground air coordination. We've always known that the Russian Air Force has certain weaknesses, for example, in the area of suppression of enemy air defenses and destruction of enemy air defenses. But it's been very surprising how poorly um, Overall, Russian, the Russian Air Force also has performed, particularly when it comes to degrading Ukrainian air defense systems. So I think overall, we should not take the wrong lessons from this conflict, because I think that's very much a danger here, just because we are dealing with a Russian army, at least, that's been really not trained for this kind of operation that went in there without any preparation. And I think they definitely would fight NATO differently. And they also would be able to perhaps use more of their strength when it comes to fighting NATO, just because they're really focused on larger scale peace uh, battles, essentially, rather than these smaller skirmishes and engagements that we're seeing at the moment. So you said that we're living in a Ukrainian narrative, or at least operating from a Ukrainian narrative when it comes to this information warfare. What about the Ukrainian armed forces? Is what we're hearing equal to what we're seeing? And and, and how do we judge their performance so far? I think that's a really interesting question. And I don't think I have a satisfactory answer here. We don't know that much about the current state attrition levels and so forth of the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, that's uh, quite quite evident um, for a number of reasons. First of all, we don't quite know how many casualties uh, the Ukrainian armed forces have been suffering so far. We don't really know their, the exact status of their uh, operational reserves. We don't know how much ammunition of, they have left. We don't know how effectively some of these weapon systems from the West are really getting to the right troops and to the right front lines. And I think there's at least some partial evidence that we have a tendency to perhaps overestimate the tactical performance because what we've seen over the last couple of days, Russian forces are regrouping, are retreating to tact, you know, more uh, suitable tactical positions. They're giving up territory. And... The media in the West, at least, is celebrating this as great uh, Ukrainian victories, at least some media outlets are. And I think we have to be very careful here um, just to, to make make sure that we are not overestimating what the Ukrainian forces are capable of. Because the fact is that for the time being, they're capable of launching limited counteroffensive on a fairly small scale. We have seen some evidence that when they meet fierce Russian resistance, resistance they're less they're less effective and actually also have been pushed back on occasions. And then, of course, every single counterattack also causes casualties, not only on the side defending, but also um, the attacker. So again, I think um, in the long run, we are really uh, approaching some form of attritional warfare. And here it's really important to husband your resources. And I think if the Ukrainian armed forces would overdo it, so to speak, with counterattacking now, I think they could attrit themselves quite quickly. And then, of course, the next question is what is really happening over the next couple of weeks? And again, there's some evidence that this is not really the end of uh, this war and the beginning of negotiations, but rather perhaps an operational pause where 
the Russian side is really trying to regroup and receive reinforcements on two or all three of their uh, front lines in the north, east, and south, and then just use additional reinforcements in the week at, weeks ahead to at least try to uh, achieve one last major offensive victory before continuing negotiations. But we don't know this yet, right? We don't really know at what stage of the war we are in. I think what's pretty clear, though, is that the opening phase of this war is over. It's uh, what I think Winston Churchill said after the Battle of El Alamein in 1942. This is not the end. This is not uh, the beginning of the end, but perhaps this is uh, the end of the beginning. And I think that's where we are at this stage of this war. So what will Russia's operational priorities be moving forward? I think they've clearly signaled this from day one. And I think two major operational priorities were always one, Kiev, the encirclement of Kiev. I was always skeptical about them being actually able to capture it. Um, I said so, I think, already on uh, February 24th, right after the beginning of the invasion. I think it was always more about encircling the city and then really bombing it into submission to gain some political concessions from the Zelensky government. Um, after, of course, the initial uh, decapitation strike failed. Um, and secondly, according to Russian military doctrine of deep operations, encircling the bulk of the Ukrainian armed forces east of the Dnepr River encircled them uh, and then um, either capture or destroy these elements before they can retreat in orderly fashion to west of the Dnepr River. And that's what we are seeing right now, I think, as the two main priorities. And the Battle of Mariupol, which is continuing as we speak, is just part of this uh, second larger larger military objective, because once Mariupol is taken, reinforcement can be moved up north to support this pincer movement, essentially from north of Mariupol and south of our Kharkiv to encircle Ukrainian forces. But again, here, we don't quite know what is really in this pocket or what is really the status of Ukrainian forces in the east. Before the war began, we were estimating that there were anything from eight to nine brigades stationed along the line of contact. We don't know how many how many brigades are left or what their status here really is and also to what degree at this stage the russians can really succeed but i think right now i would i would focus my attention on this encirclement or potential encirclement of uh, ukrainian troops in the east and then also what's happening in kiev because i i somehow don't buy this whole argument that kiev is sort of uh, that they they that they are letting kiev off the hook here but i could be proven wrong Maybe moving on to Nigel at this point. Nigel, President Biden stated in his uh, recent State of the Union address that President Putin miscalculated when he launched his invasion of Ukraine and that in the face of unexpected Western unity, Putin has isolated Russia from the world. Was Putin's move a strategic mistake on his part? And if so, what do you think can account for it? I think there's no question that this is the biggest and most serious strategic mistake that Putin has ever made. And it has had unexpected uh, and, for him, undesirable consequences on every front. Uh, in the field, uh, Russia has faced far more determined and effective military, but also political unity and resistance than he imagined, uh, confounding his expectations that uh, he'd be able to replace the Zelensky administration within days. Uh, internationally, he is now faced with unprecedentedly strong and unified uh, Western response. Uh, one way to think about this is that this is the third time since the Second World War that 
Russia or during the Cold War uh, uh, in its ideological guise, the Soviet Union, has overreached itself and summoned a countervailing uh, Western coalitions, uh, brought into being the latent strength of the West. The first time was in the late 1940s, led to the founding of NATO and the, the troubling of uh, American defense expenditure. The second was in the late 1970s, when the uh, NATO alliance uh, made the decision to uh, deploy intermediate range nuclear weapons, and then you had the big Reagan military buildup. This is the third uh, such occasion, and it's the strongest and most emphatic. There's essentially no significant element of Western public opinion that opposes this uh, response to Russia. The range of instruments that are being uh, deployed now to respond to Russia is also extremely severe and significant. And, and as you say, and President Biden said, isolating Russia very, very quickly to a degree we've not seen in decades. Even during the Cold War, we did not see a, a closing of European airspace, for example, to, uh, to, to Russian uh, flights. But what's drawn most attention, of course, is the uh, scale and severity of the sanctions. Now, Russia had worked hard to supposedly sanctions-proof its economy at some economic cost to itself in, in the course of those preparations. And there was clearly some complacency on the Russian side that, uh, uh, that it could weather whatever the West threw at it. Uh, and yet the West has come up with responses, especially, not only, but especially the freezing of central bank sanctions that have taken Russia completely by surprise. Again, this is not something even that happened in Cold War times. Uh, every week we hear of new private sector companies that are withdrawing from Russia. So uh, we have a, a, a sea change in the corporate uh, attitude to Russia now. In the past, uh, companies would comply with sanctions because they had to, but they would quietly lobby against them. Uh, this time, you have uh, an additional second uh, private sector uh, set of sanctions, in effect, complementing the state sanctions. Uh, the question now is how much more complete Russia's isolation can become. That's clearly the direction of travel right now. Why did Russia make these, and Putin personally, because it's his war, make these miscalculations? And partly failures to understand Ukraine. That's been quite fundam fundamental and a, a continuous feature of his Ukrainian policies going right back to the Orange Revolution in 2004. And secondly, his underestimation of the latent strength of the West. Since Putin fundamentally does not see Ukraine as a legitimately different culture and country, he's never taken the trouble really to understand it. Uh, and uh, that is really the root of his political failures in Ukraine. Uh, ironically, of course, his actions over a period of time have uh, brought into being consequences that are the opposite of what he assumed and intended, which is to say you, Ukraine has become a more emphatically distinct culture and identity, ever more aware of its fundamental differences from Russia, not the same as Russia. Uh, and as far as uh, his miscalculations of the West go, I think, among other things, he overdrew lessons from the withdrawal 
from Afghanistan. And soon after that withdrawal, there were very senior Russian voices very explicitly and directly making the comparison, saying, you in Kiev, uh, you better watch it because uh, you will find your American friends desert you as quickly as uh, the Americans left uh, Kabul. Uh, and again, that, that has been a very significant uh, miscalculation. The third and final miscalculation is on the home front. This is the most unpopular thing that uh, Putin has ever done at home. Now, he's clearly working hard now to try to bolster support. And there is, unfortunately, I have to say, evidence now of, at least in the short term, quite widespread uh, popular Russian support uh, for the war. But against the background of a flattened and repressed civil society, nonetheless, in much larger numbers than anyone expected, brave people uh, are taking their own future into their hands and protesting against this war. Others, the best and the brightest, are leaving Russia. But above all, always in these situations, watch what elites do. There are a lot of people around Putin who are profoundly unhappy with his fateful roll of the dice. And it's their opinions above all that Putin must now uh, uh, manage and take into account. I mean, is that what some of these sanctions then intend to achieve, to pressure the elite and the oligarchs around Putin? And do you think that that's a strategy that will work? I think sanctions are intended to do a number of things to erode capabilities and to shift and shape intentions. Even if uh, they don't soften Russians, uh, Russian views or opinions, even if they don't make Russia more uh, minded to scale back their objectives in Ukraine, nonetheless, sanctions will damage over time, Russia's capacity to sustain its power in Ukraine and elsewhere. They will have this erosive effect. Uh, Russian GDP is set to fall by anything between 10 to 15 percent over the coming year. That's less guns and less butter. That will put real strains on the, Russia's resource base. The uh, restrictions on semiconductor exports to Russia a uh, very wide international coalition, including several Asian countries involved in that, will over time limit and erode Russia's technical capability uh, in military respects, other respects as well. But in addition to your point about intentions, uh, yes, uh, this is part of uh, the goal as well, to try to influence and persuade elites that the present course that Russia has set, uh, Putin has set the country on leads into a dead end. And it's not only the oligarchs. Yes, they are largely cowed and constrained, although I note with interest the role that Roman Abramovich is playing in the, the peace talks between uh, Ukraine and Russia at the moment. It's not just oligarchs. It's the entire elite class. See, there's a whole business sector, some of the security-minded Siloviki uh, 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 as well. So if one is looking at the role of sanctions in this respect, the way to pose the question is to ask, in any system, even the most oppressive, autocratic and personalistic, how long can a leader persist in a course of action that fundamentally threatens the essential interests of all or most of the elite class? William, if I could turn to you next. Nigel just mentioned Russia's miscalculation with regards to understanding the home base and Ukraine. 
So how has Russian statecraft impacted how European countries have responded to the invasion? Yes, I think Russia has invested heavily in attempting to divide the EU and NATO. And this has paid only marginal dividends and in fact has seen some huge reverses. Um, You would say that the efforts to corrupt governments like Cyprus and Austria have not at all paid off in the way that they expected. Uh, Austria has maintained um, excellent voting in the EU in terms of sanctions and support, uh, despite heavy investment in their energy sector and the presence of a pretty large population of Russian spies on their territory necessarily because of hosting so many international organizations. And then Cyprus, uh, really hoping to keep open options like the port at Limassol, which Cyprus has announced will not uh, be welcoming to Russian ships. And that's an important way station uh, for Russia in its naval moves from the Baltic Sea through to the Black Sea. We also see huge failures with Sweden and Finland to the point of ridiculousness. There was an air incursion into Finnish airspace when the Swede, Swedish and Finnish uh, security policy folks were meeting on Gotland Island a few weeks ago, uh, further turbocharging the argument in Finland to join NATO. And we've seen some really intense diplomacy as it appears Finland's probably made the firm decision and Sweden is trying to delay uh, till report comes out in May. And I don't think we could have foreseen that. Yeah, so I think I think a lot of the, the political gains that they thought they had gotten in dividing the EU and NATO have not paid off nearly as well as they would have hoped. Nigel, returning briefly to the point on sanctions, I wonder how this is being perceived in Moscow. How might Putin be viewing these sanctions, and do we think he cares? And what might Putin interpret the West's intended outcome of these sanctions as being? First, on the question of whether Putin cares about the sanctions, they force him to care. If your economy is set to fall by 10, 15, maybe a higher percentage over the coming year, you have to care. That has enormous consequences for your capacity to generate and project power. It has enormous implications for the welfare of your citizens. And Putin faces an election which will be neither free nor fair in 2024. But elections, even systems like this, are always moments of stress for a a system. We've seen uh, examples of that before in Russia and elsewhere. So, yes, and behind the numbers, which uh, themselves are significant, look qualitatively at the sort of effects we are likely to see in coming months. A running out of spare parts, for example, and replacements and upgrades across large swathes of Russian manufacturing industry. Uh, Russia became highly dependent for a whole range of capital goods, manufacturing imports, machinery, Uh, and so on, not to speak of nearly all of its software uh, in the past two decades. And if the flow of things essential to keep that going simply stops, then uh, Russia runs into trouble very quickly. Already price controls, reports of regional shortages, those sorts of things. We're barely five weeks in. It will get much worse, and Putin will have to care whether he wants to or not. Now, on the question of what uh, the West Uh, ultimate goals are, how sanctions feed into this. Well, one way to ask that is to say, uh, under what circumstances will these sanctions be lifted? Uh, And that is a a, a debate that the West, it seems to me, has not 
explicitly had with itself yet, uh, and it's it's right that it not uh, have that debate. I think we're we're far too soon even to discuss uh, that. Uh, it's timing always matters in diplomacy, and I would worry a little. I think that if uh, if the West started proactively setting out the conditions on, in some detail under which sanctions could be lifted, that would send the wrong inadvertent signal to Putin that the West wants to come to terms. Uh, that would uh, be an invitation to probe and explore and try to erode Western positions and Western unity. In due course, that sort of conversation will be uh, important to have. Uh, Victoria Nuland did give a, a uh, an interview to TASS, the, news, the Russian news agency, about three weeks ago. And she did say in terms, well, if Russia reverses its actions, then we can expect to see some of these sanctions lifted. But at, at this point, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's uh, really too soon. On the question of those, those nine words, I, I, I mean, it, I do feel that there's been a kind of feed, feeding frenzy of interpretation on that. There are more interesting significant things that happened during, uh, I think, a quite historic Biden visit to uh, Europe. You know, there has been efforts to, to pause and, and, and row back uh, that point. Just to make you know, the broader observation about uh, whether Putin's future is in some sense linked to the future of sanctions, I think at this stage it's incumbent on those who take the view that it would be possible to lift sanctions while Putin remains in power to make that case. And it's, uh, that's, uh, that's a very hard case to make at the moment, given the extent of the actions that, uh, that Putin has taken. Put it another way, go back to those two precedents that I, I spoke of before. In the late 1940s, you had Soviet overreach uh, and then the West building up its response. The same in the late 1970s. What changed both of those situations? What led to, in both of those cases, to an improvement in the Soviet-Western relationship. In both cases, it was a change of leader. Within weeks of Stalin's death in March 1953, you saw his successors begin to take steps to, uh, to, to ease the tensions both domestically and externally. The same was true in 1985 when Gorbachev came to power. So by way of historical analogy, it seems to me we are unlikely to see any significant improvement at all in the Russian-Western relationship until Putin leaves the scene one way or another. That's not a call for regime change. That's simply an observation of the state of affairs based on a historical precedent. So, William, we've talked a lot about economic sanctions, but of course, we also like to talk about NATO's response uh, to this and NATO's support through military aid of Ukraine. And we've seen somewhat of a strategic shift within the alliance and how it has positioned its forces through forward presence to the north uh, and east of the alliance. So how significant is this shift for NATO and how long lasting will its impact be? Well, this is a massive shift. NATO has been, if we start at the beginning, the effort to reinforce the Baltics coming after the September 2015 Russian seizure of a Estonian border guard right after President Obama had given a significant Article 5 speech in Tallinn, really made NATO question what it could do to defend uh, itself. It did a series of exercises to see if the NATO response force was adequate to the task. It wasn't 
the very ready joint task force, which was the big headline of the day, was not adequate to go in under any sort of um, contested environment. So it was thought that we needed forward deployed forces. That was called the Enhanced Forward Presence. It's a battalion in Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland, each um, about 2,000 troops with multiple, multiple allies uh, involved in each one of those deployments, principally the US, the UK, and France, so that war in the Baltics immediately involves the three nuclear powers of the alliance. But the question was, what do we do for the Southeast flank? And the conversation started to evolve. It was going to be something called TFP, Temporary Forward Presence. And it was going to be ships and aircraft. But then how do you get ships into the Black Sea regularly? Because the Montreux Convention, which is the document that governs the movement in and out of the Black Sea of naval forces, uh, is pretty restrictive in terms of what can go in, what can go out. And Turkey is a very careful um, uh, leader on that regard. So the idea that now we're putting actual troops in, and in fact, France has already deployed troops as part of the NATO response force to Romania, about 500 troops. And we're, we've now agreed that these are going to be um, battalions, just like the EFP forces. This is a, a significant change. Uh, this simply was not under discussion uh, five, six, seven years ago. So I think it's, it's a big shift for NATO to put troops in here. It's a different logistical challenge in terms of transportation, um, uh, between and among mobility, all those issues are really big. We're also seeing a lot of talk about additional forces in the Baltics and Poland, shifting from a policy of you know, deterrence by tripwire and punishment to uh, trying to deter by denial, by actually being able to contest uh, Russian forces in that region. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting shift. Uh, I think at the NATO summit, you're going to see a renunciation of the NATO-Russia Founding Act, and we're going to see some of these forces go from rotational to permanent. The big thing to watch is whether or not these will be accompanied posts. This was a deliberate strategy by the United States during the Cold War to move military families into Germany and give them a, you know, a, a cultural and personal link to that country and to make a constituency in the United States that would support German freedom and make real the fight for Germany. I think if we see accompanied posts in the East, that would be the strongest sign of a permanent shift in US thinking. Uh, as to whether other, other allies do that as well, I think, I think it's a great idea because, again, it gives your country a deeper involvement and engagement than just a rotational force that goes in for three months, six months, a year, and then pulls out and goes on to your next assignment. So we are seeing a shift in infrastructure. We are seeing a shift in troops. We are seeing a shift in force posture. Uh, it's still evolving, but it's very, very significant. And I think it's going to be uh, at least for the medium or at least the medium, if not for the long term. We've also seen that from the alliance, certain members have kind of spun out of NATO's response and formed their own minilateral initiatives as well, even indeed between allies who haven't always seen eye to eye or, or been natural partners in this sense. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, some of them have gone along the routes that you would expect, like um, France and Romania. They have a deep Francophone um, linkage with Romania, so that makes sense for them. And of course, Poland trying to lead the Baltics uh, and the Nordics engaging as well uh, to try to look at defense up in the Baltic region. One would expect that. There was the curious announcement on the 25th of March that Greece, Turkey, and France uh, had agreed to uh, humanitarian relief of Mariupol. Of course, that story, I, I note that there was no, I, I can't find any Turkish quotes that back that up, but there are lots of Greek and French quotes. Uh, if that's true, that's a significant realignment considering how um, 
France's messaging regarding the Eastern Mediterranean has not always been uh, tremendously popular with, a, with, um, with all allies. So if there is some sort of Greek-Turkish-French rapprochement, that would be absolutely fascinating. But noting as well that Turkey is playing still kind of a balancing act between Russia and Ukraine and has said they're not going to significantly damage their, Russia, their Russian relations, even though they continue to sell Bakhtayar to Ukraine and to some uh, spectacular success. But of course, there are talks right now going on in Istanbul between the two sides. And out of that, you see another weird minilateral grouping as Ukraine uh, names the states that it would like to see give security assurances. And just today, I've seen two completely different lists, and they're, they're very, very interesting lists. One news report said it was Poland, Israel, Turkey, and Canada that had to provide positive security assurances. I I can't believe that that's true, but you know, you, you read what you read. The one that seems to be more reasonable would be the US, UK, France, Turkey, and Germany. And there, there you have the three nuclear states again of the NATO alliance. Uh, Turkey, which has to be involved again because of the Black Sea and the Bosporus. Uh, Germany, very interesting um, to put on that list as well. But yeah, we're seeing really all kinds of strange alignments. And you know, the Swedish and Finnish debate on joining NATO has just been you know, so incredible to watch. And of course, Sweden has supplied excellent lethal weapon support to Ukraine, including the AT-4 anti-tank missile, which is a very capable system. And we've even seen photographs of Ukrainian troops walking with the missiles on their back with the Swedish markings on it. So that's a very interesting development. And also you see NATO itself being involved in different multilateral formats. I believe it was the first ever G7 summit at NATO headquarters um, last week. Uh, the EU also meeting regularly at NATO with, so NATO, the EU, Sweden, and Finland having very close consultations, but again, having a G7 um, at NATO headquarters. I think there's only ever been one other one in Belgium, and that was at the EU headquarters back a few years ago. So yeah, all kinds of interesting mini-lat and multi-lat reorientations and reconfigurations being forced by the conflict. Friends? I think we have to assume that Russia is going to be for the foreseeable future, conventionally inferior vis-a-vis -vis NATO and the United States. And I wonder what sort of implication this has for European security architecture, or at least um, NATO, US, NATO relations when it comes to pure military to military exchanges, and whether this means that we're actually going to return to a more of uh, 1990s Russian armed forces with not Boris Yeltsin in power, but rather someone more bellicose in charge, if it's not Vladimir Putin, um, but definitely someone who might be just as aggressive as Vladimir Putin. And I think this is this could be a very toxic or dangerous mix where you all of a sudden have uh, Russia increasingly having to rely on tactical nuclear weapons to compensate for its uh, conventional inferiority and to what degree this is really destabilizing. So I do think at some level here, no matter how this turns out, I do think we have to somehow keep our channels open to at least talk on a pure military to military level with the Russians just to, to really have some confidence building measures in place if the Russians really will need to rely more on tactical nuclear weapons to prop up their conventional uh, deterrence vis-a-vis -vis NATO and the United States. That's really interesting. Nigel, how do you view this impacting escalation dynamics in the course of the conflict moving forward? Well, the question since the early days of this invasion, as Russia began to face setbacks, 
in the field is whether and how Russia will escalate. Uh, and clearly it has in some degree already. Uh, it's focusing far more on uh, the pure hurting and killing of innocent people and seeking to extract concessions in, in a negotiation process uh, by the threat of, uh, of, of doing more of that. Uh, but then, of course, there's the, the larger question of escalation into different and more uh, deadly forms of, of weapons and weapons of mass destruction uh, in particular. Uh, Russia is now, unlike the Cold War, oh, the weaker, not the stronger conventional military party compared to NATO. And that's a situation that Russia has not faced uh, before. Not the least of the consequences of this whole war so far is how quickly it has laid bare the illusions of Russian great power along a number of dimensions, both militarily, also in cyber terms, at least so far. That's a dog that hasn't barked. And finally, on the economic front, all this hard work and protecting its economy, and yet it still faces very, very serious uh, problems. Uh, what does it mean now, asking a genuine question, uh, to call Russia a great power except in respect of nuclear weapons? There are reports now that Putin uh, and those close to him are spending more time in their nuclear bunker in the Urals, which uh, is something that we should take note of and possibly uh, worry about. Uh, on the matter of nuclear weapons themselves, and the potential use. Uh, William may have uh, more observations to make. Do you, William? Franz pointed out that Russia is going to have to rely more on their nuclear deterrent uh, to achieve their outcomes. They, they use it quite often in rhetoric. They've used it against missile defense, uh, threatening to nuke uh, Danish ships uh, in the past. They've, they've used it in this crisis in the most alarming way possible. It would isolate Russia to a degree that would be just unimaginable right now. And I think it would, for the, a lot of the world, would force his worst outcome, which would be uh, a goal of regime change in Moscow. Uh, I think the use of nuclear weapons, even in a demonstration strike, would just be so far beyond the pale right now. Uh, India, for instance, would certainly have to drop all of its talk of helping uh, Russian banks out. Even China would have to say, this is too much. Uh, and, you know, the fact that Russia is so dependent on such a small group of nations now for anything suggests to me that any directly attributable chemical weapons use, much less any nuclear use, is going to have consequences for them far beyond any possible advantage they could have in brandishing the nuclear sword at this point. On to one last question for you, William. Moving on to what lessons NATO should be taking away from the conflict, the way that it stands at the moment. I mean, NATO is in the last legs of drafting its new strategic concept, which will be valid for the next 10 years. What should it be taking away from what we're seeing in Ukraine? God, I feel so bad for the NATO policy planning unit, which took the pen for the strategic concept. Uh, Bertie, I'm sure is doing her best, but uh, to have such whiplash through this conflict, such a realignment, uh, even with Germany changing with the turning point speech, its long held positions on Russia and on defense. So certainly you're going to see a, hopefully, hopefully, you're going to see a strategic concept that can endure. The 2010 strategic concept was just, you know, a terrible document. Uh, and it was so terrible that the military 
strategy that came out of that was the longest delayed military strategy in NATO history. It was so contested. It required a separate document called the Deterrence and Defense Posture Review in order to paper over some of the cracks. How can you maintain a NATO nuclear deterrent if it's not literally for anything at all? Uh, because we live in a world where NATO, where Russia is a future uh, friend and partner and lover. I mean, it just, it's such a terrible document, so out of time, even for 2010, post-Georgia, it was an embarrassment. So we're going to need one that acknowledges that we're living in a much more dangerous world. We're going to have to acknowledge to, to as much a degree as we can that Russia is an adversary. We're going to have to toss the NATO-Russia Founding Act out the window. It's that another document that just literally makes no sense in this environment. If you actually read it, it says this document is meant to support the way to the uh, adoption of the adapted CFE treaty which is not only not on the table, but utterly impossible to, to, to ratify. And it also says, as Russia has improved its military doctrine in a benign way, and it's removing its forces from Eastern Europe, literally the conditions in the preamble of the NATO-Russia Founding Act no longer make any sense. That's got to go. So we have to have a strategic concept that recognizes that Russia is an adversary, that we lived in a contested environment with a great power, well, an aspiring great power anyway, that has, is nuclear armed and is looking to damage the alliance in every way that it can. We have to look much much further back in NATO history to a great document like the Harmel report for the kind of rhetorical tone we need going forward. Or, I mean, I would strongly advocate we get rid of the political strategic concept altogether. This was something that we only did for the first time in 1990 at the end of the Cold War. Previously, all the strategic concepts before that were the strategic concept for the defense of the alliance, and they were given political guidance by the NAC, but then written by the military and then adopted by heads of state. Um, we broke off the political and military strategic concepts into separate documents uh, at the end of the Cold War, and this has caused a lot of disconnect, a lot of uh, consternation. We actually had a new military strategy adopted in 2019 ahead of the strategic concept, and that shouldn't make sense. You should have political guidance on in your core strategic concept before you do a military doctrine or strategy change. Uh, so a lot of lessons to be learned from the past here. I think we will see the political strategic concept anyway, but I hope it's an enduring document this time. I hope it's more strategic in thinking about how to um, fulfill NATO's core task, which is to defend the alliance and ensure that no ally feels threatened uh, by a foreign power, uh, whether it be Russia or China or others. So we'll see going forward, but it's going to be a tough one there in Madrid. I would also note one last thing. It is very significant that they have now extended, they just announced at the NATO Extraordinary Summit, that Jens Stoltenberg will be extended through September 2023. Significant for two reasons. Number one, I think it signals that the Allies realize this conflict could go longer and you don't want to change secgens in the middle of a shooting war in Europe. And number two, that we're not just going to drop a new strategic concept on the new secgen and say, here you go, good luck. Uh, but actually that a new secgen will come after this document has been walked through for a while, hopefully after we have uh, MC400 slash four, the, the, the new concept for the, the military um, implementation of that strategic concept in place before the new secgen has to then pick up and run with it. Well, that's something to look uh, out for. Nigel and friends, if I could ask you as well each one thing that you'll be looking out for in your respective areas of research with regards to the conflict, what would it be? Nigel first. I will be looking at what new sanctions will be applied to Russia. Uh, there's still stuff in the cupboard that hasn't been taken out yet uh, and deployed. 
Now, uh, some of these will be more divisive for the alliance. So at least it will be more difficult for everyone to agree because they are likely to impose higher costs in particular on Europe. We're looking especially at any comprehensive regime of restricting oil uh, sales from Russia. Uh, but that's really one of the big remaining holes in the, the, the sanctions uh, fence that's been put around Russia and would uh, impose acute and uh, significant further costs. So watch the debates on, on Russia's economic isolation. Thank you. And France? Uh, for me, it would be Russian and Ukrainian bottom-up battlefield adaptation. That is, how quickly can either side really adjust to changing conditions in the battle space and who is going to have the upper hand here. I think that's going to be very important just in terms of uh, figuring out in what direction the Russian armed forces at least are going to develop in the years after this conflict has been concluded. With that, I'm afraid we're out of time. We covered a lot of ground in our discussion and there's lots more left to discuss. So thank you, William, Nigel and Franz for coming on the program and sharing your insights. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do follow, rate and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the ongoing war in Ukraine and other key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the WSS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the WSS's website. Thank you and see you next time.